interesting to walk through with you all. I've, I've really gotten a lot out of it, and I hope it's been a continual blessing and challenge to you. We've been going through it since February, and unfortunately, we only have three more messages in the Sermon on the Mount counting today. And the good news is that this sermon is not the only teaching of Jesus found in the Gospel of Matthew, so that's a good thing. But this week, we wrap up the body of the sermon. And so the following two messages next week and the week after will focus on Jesus's epilogue and exhortation at the end of the sermon. So have you noticed how Jesus routinely goes back and forth throughout the sermon between our relationship with God and our relationship with others? Have you noticed that? In chapter 5, Jesus started with the Beatitudes, or the uh, Kingdom Manifesto, we called it. Some of those Beatitudes had to do with our relationship to God, most of them actually, and some had to do with our relationship to others. And then Jesus moved on to some really important words that are relevant for our message today. So don't forget these words. We should remember them as we go through the whole sermon. He said, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. From there, Jesus walked us through the law in chapter 5 and our relationship with other people culminating in the statement, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then in chapter 6, Jesus turned his attention toward our relationship with God. The things that we do as good works and acts of worship should be done in secret, not for attention from others, not to show off our spirituality. We should give and pray and fast as acts of worship to the Lord. Then Jesus gave us a model prayer leading to the exhortation to build up treasure in heaven. Because with God as our master, we don't need to be anxious about life's basic provisions. That's chapter 6. Remember, God provides for his children what they need to serve him. And then in chapter 7, Jesus turned his attention back to our relationship with others at the beginning of the chapter. We were encouraged not to have judgmental attitudes, right, but to exercise godly discernment. And this week, we have both aspects as he wraps up the body of the sermon. Verses 7 through 11 deal with our relationship with the Lord. And verse 12, the proper bookend of the sermon, deals with our relationship with others. So let's stand together and read Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12 together. Again, Matthew 7, 7 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray as you're seated. Lord, we come to your word now humbly, asking that you would teach us. Open our hearts this morning, open our minds to your word, help us to have understanding and to apply it to our lives. Lord, we pray again that you would conform us to your word, that our lives would would not be 
the judge of the word, but the word would be the judge of our lives. That we would get rid of the things that don't conform to it. And would we, we would adopt new things that it teaches us to adopt. So Lord, we ask for these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. A common theme throughout these verses, 7 through 12, is our activity. God doesn't want passive, boring disciples. He wants us to do something. He wants us to participate in the project of kingdom building. And it's not busy work either. He doesn't want us to do things for the sake of doing them. These are not simple routines. They're not mantras that we perform to feel better or to fill our day. These are holy activities that make us more like Jesus. And today, we find two of them, two holy activities. First, Jesus wants us to actively pray to God. Ask, seek, knock. Here in verses 7 through 11, prayer is pictured as an urgent activity. The idea is persistence. And there's even a hint of desperation Overall, our attitude in prayer is what is in focus. Jesus wants his disciples to cultivate an attitude toward prayer that sees it as something absolutely necessary. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. And the same three words are repeated in verse 8. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. The words carry with them continued activity. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. They're not things we do just one time. They are the characteristic activities of a Christian in prayer. Christians ask, seek, and knock. So Jesus frames prayer in an absolute sense here. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. And so the implications of verses 7 and 8 are obvious. If you don't ask, you don't receive. If you don't seek, you don't find. And if you don't knock, the door will not be open to you. James says something very similar in James 4.2. You do not have because you do not ask. So Jesus is calling his disciples to radical Bold, faith-filled, persistent prayer. Is that how we pray? Do we ask expecting to receive? Do we seek expecting to find? Do we knock expecting the door to be opened? Our idea of God can easily slip into an assumption that he likes to see us suffer that he doesn't really want to give us what we ask for. We can easily think that because God already knows what we need, we don't really need to ask for it, and God doesn't really want us to waste our breath. But it's the precise opposite. In fervent, persistent, and bold prayers, we submit ourselves to God and the things he wants us to ask for. So remember chapter 6, verse 8. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. We don't have to convince God, like pagans from back in chapter 6, to give us good things, the good things he already wants to give us. He already knows what we need, and yet we're invited to ask. And we're not just invited once. 
We are to keep on asking, to keep on seeking, to keep on knocking over and over again. God is offering an invitation to you to go to him boldly and ask him for the things he wants to give you. So let's examine our hearts. Have you realized this offer? That it's been extended to you individually? Have you felt the courage in prayer that Jesus is talking about? Or are we fearful more often than not in our prayers? Do we assume that God's answer will be no? Do we think of prayer as a worthless exercise and a waste of breath? Do we pray at all? Jesus doesn't want us to walk away from the Sermon on the Mount thinking God doesn't care about us. Or that God doesn't want a real relationship with with us. He, He actually wants us to talk to him. He wants to hear from us. He wants to hear from you. He wants us to ask him things. He wants us to seek him out. He wants us to knock on heaven's door with our prayers. But you know what can often get in the way of bold prayers like this? An assumption that praying bold prayers is bad theology. When we hear verses 7 and 8, we bristle. We, We react negatively because we know that poor theologians and poor pastors have interpreted these verses poorly. They have taught that Jesus is giving us carte blanche. They have taught that you only lack material wealth because you lack faith in prayer. They've taught that you don't have a Bentley because you don't ask God for it. But that's a bunch of baloney. And we know that, right? We know that. We know that Jesus isn't telling us to ask for treasure on earth because he already told us to store up treasure in heaven. This is near the end of the sermon, remember. He isn't telling us to ask for millions and billions because he's already told us that we can only serve one master, and it's not money. So out of an abundance of concern that we maintain our pure theology, which is a good motivation, we end up not praying boldly for the things God actually wants us to pray for. That's a problem. What a shame. This whole time, Jesus has, giving us, has been giving us a list of things to earnestly seek God for. Throughout the sermon, poverty of spirit, purity of heart, truth, compassion, a non-retaliatory spirit, a life of integrity, our basic needs and provisions, and the peace that passes all understanding. In short, God wants us to ask for his righteousness. That's been a major theme of the sermon. It all comes back to the fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Ask and you will receive. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, aren't you also praying for it? So it's not a blank check. As if God has to give us whatever we ask for if we have enough faith. This is an invitation to ask God for the things he wants us to have, that he's told us he wants to give us. God is a good father. 
He wants to give us the things that we need to be good sons and daughters. That's the picture Jesus uses in the following verses. This mini parable, this word picture. Verse 9, or, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? These are two questions that are asking an assumed answer. Which one of you, if his son asked for bread, would give him a stone? None of us. Or if he asked for a fish, would give him a serpent? Again, who would do that? None of us. And then Jesus makes another argument from the greater to the lesser. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Evil, sinful people, even bad parents, are capable of realizing the good that their children need. Only the the worst parents would offer a stone instead of bread to a hungry child that they love. Only a monster would give a poisonous snake to their child when they're eager for meat. Bread and fish were two major staples of the Galilean diet. They formed the the famous lunch of the young boy who offers up his loaves and fishes to be multiplied by Jesus in chapter 14. This is not much. In the word picture, the son is not asking his father for anything extreme. Normal food, his daily bread. He's asking his father for everyday stuff, for the things his father has already given him in the past. And the implications are astounding. God, whose very essence is love and goodness, knows much more than evil, sinful parents what their children need. Do we not believe that he will give it? Jesus says, How much more? Will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Maybe part of our doubt lies in the fact that we don't actually see God as Father. Maybe that's part of our problem. As perfect, good, and a loving Father, God knows exactly what his children need. But I think our attitude toward him can easily fall into two dangerous traps. First, we can wrongly picture God as a Father who spoils his children giving them everything they want, even if it's bad for them, if they have enough faith. This is the theology of prosperity. If we nag God enough with puppy dog eyes, he has to give us what we ask for. But the problem is, if that's really how God operates, that gives us a paralyzing amount of power. That means that everything that goes wrong in the world is because we didn't pray against it. Everything bad that happens to us is because we lack faith. It puts us in God's seat. And we are not equipped to know what we should pray for all the time. Praise the Lord that he helps us in our prayers. Amen? He's not a bad father who only does the whims of his children. He is actually in control of all things. And he knows exactly what we need. To use Jesus' analogy, a good father does not give his son a snake even if his son asks for one. Over and over with puppy dog eyes. In the same way, God only gives us the good things that he knows we need to be brought closer to him 
and to do his will, which is our ultimate good. Do you believe that? That God's will for you is the best possible life you could lead? Do we pray earnestly and ask over and over for the things that we need to accomplish his will for our lives? God is not a father who has to do what his children ask of him. That's the first trap we can fall into. But the second is like it. He's also not a father who begrudgingly gives to his children, but would prefer some peace and quiet. Maybe some of us tend to think of our Heavenly Father as the kind of dad who really regrets having us and would not like anything to do with us. Maybe we think of him as an abusive father who enjoys smacking us around a bit and takes joy in our pain. Maybe we think of our Heavenly Father as someone who not only will not give us what we ask for, but actively enjoys giving us bad things, who wants to see us suffer. This isn't God either. God is a good Father who gives His children exactly what they need to do His will. He is not distant. He is not negligent. He is perfect in love toward you. Do you believe that too? Jesus wants us to approach our Heavenly Father with the knowledge that He is good and that He loves us. Again, He wants us to have the good things He's prepared for us. He wants to provide for our needs. He wants to make us righteous like His Son. He wants us to grow in wisdom and in the knowledge of His Word. He desires to meet with us and to hear from us. So do you believe that God is a good Father who loves you? It's not a trivial question, or I'm not asking it to manipulate your emotions this morning. The question needs to be asked of every Christian, because Satan will try to tempt you to think that God is actually not a very good father at all, and he'll use whatever he can to do it. He'll use your suffering and your sickness, your poverty and lack of direction, and periodical distance from God to convince you that he doesn't love you, but he does. And he wants you to cry out to him. He wants you to ask and seek and knock over and over again. He wants you to pray. So let me encourage you. If you have a regular discipline of prayer, then press on. Pray bold prayers and pray them often over and over again. Seeking God's will for your life. Knowing that's your greatest good. If you wish your prayer life was better. If you'd like to pray more or pray longer. Then remember the words of Jesus here. Everyone who asks receives, and everyone who seeks finds, and everyone who knocks will see an opened door. Pray expecting God to answer. Pray knowing you're actually doing something, that you're not wasting your breath. Pray for the things he wants you to pray for. When we know that God is a good father, when we start there, we want to meet with him. And prayer is our side of that equation. And if you don't have any prayer life at all, and you're wondering where to start, I've got good news for you. Jesus gave us the starting point. We went over it a few weeks ago. Matthew 6, 9 through 13. The model prayer. The Lord's model prayer contains all the things God wants to give us. This prayer should be expanded upon in your life. 
It should be used as a tool to kickstart your prayer life. So if you don't know how to pray, if you want to start praying, or if you've taken a long break from it, go back to the beginning. Jesus wants us to pray. He wants us to pray boldly. And even the model prayer is a bold prayer. He wants us to rest in the knowledge that our Heavenly Father hears us. This is the first holy activity he's calling us today. Bold, consistent prayers. Second, Jesus wants us to actively love others. Verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. All right, we know this one really well, right? We know this really well. We know its, its name, the golden rule. You know, I searched pretty hard for a good reason why it's called the golden rule. And that's the kind of thing that my, my brain wants to know. I want to know why we do things. It's not that big of a deal, but I spent a lot of time on it, so whatever, you get to hear about it. <laughs> the conclusion of my research is basically, I don't know why it's called the golden rule, one commentary said that a Roman emperor had it carved over his bed in his bedroom because he thought it was really good. Another said that we started calling it that because some 1700s Anglican minister called it that in one of his sermons, which I can believe. Pastors are pretty influential, I'd like to think. But whatever the reason, it's a pretty good name because the golden rule pops up everywhere. Everywhere. It truly is golden in that sense, in the sense that most world religions include a statement like this. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes, sometimes they state it in the negative form, right? Don't do to others what you don't want done to you. Sometimes in the positive, like what Jesus has here. But why is it that so many religions and philosophies include something like this? Christianity is actually not very unique with this statement. I think it reveals something true about reality. For what can be known about God is plain to them, Paul says, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. God has made us this way. He's made us to recognize justice and right and wrong. The problem is that we, according to Paul in the same chapter, suppress the truth of God. Do unto others as you would have them do to you is not a new invention of Christ here in the Sermon on the Mount. It's built into the fabric of reality. It's how God created the world. It's very practical love. I should treat people the way they want, the way I'd want them to treat me. But the problem is, we fail to see and do the very thing that's built into creation. We're really bad at this. Even if we consider the negative form of this statement that a lot of world religions include, we, we can't do it. We can't keep it. Don't do to others what you don't want done to you. We don't want to be sinned against, but we sin against others. We don't want people to talk about us behind our back, but we do that to others. We don't want to be left behind and neglected by our friends, but we neglect others and the poor. We don't want to be called degrading names, but man, we degrade others, and so on and so forth. 
So don't be thrown off by the fact that almost every world religion contains a statement like this. In the Apocrypha before Christ, or the non-scriptural books written before the time of the New Testament, we can read one form of it from the book of Tobit. What you hate, don't do to anyone. It's good advice. We should expect that anyone trying to teach truth would at least stumble over the golden rule. Because God has built it into our hearts. But no world religion can even come close to solving the problem. No one can keep the rule. But Jesus makes it even harder for us. Harder for Christians. He puts it positively. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. The negative formulation allows people to sit back and do no harm. Right? It's a call to passivity. Don't hurt other people. But the positive formulation, the formulation Jesus revolutionizes here is an active call to love other people. It's a call to radical understanding and sympathy. What would you like done to you in your interactions with others? What would you really like? Do that. Do you want to be taken care of? Take care of others. Do you want to be remembered? Remember others. Do you want to be spoken well of? Speak well of others. Do you want to be prayed for? Pray for others. Do you want to be encouraged? Encourage others. Do you want to be loved? Love others. So on and so forth. This is the starting point of the Christian ethic. Jesus even says, for this is the law and the prophets. The golden rule fully summarizes the Christian's duty to other people as found in the Old Testament. All the laws written on how we should treat other people can be summed up with this one sentence. So how good of a job are we doing? Do we think that we've been, been successful in keeping this law? I'll remind you that every major world religion teaches something similar to this. And every one of them falls short of salvation. Every single one of them. Can we really expect to be doing any better? Yes. Yes, we can. The good news is that we have the Holy Spirit. The gospel teaches us that all have fallen short of the glory of God. And we're all incapable of living up to the standard of righteousness he's called humanity to. Which is so profoundly obvious, by the way, that every world religion has something like the golden rule. The standard of God's righteousness is obvious to everyone. And our sinful natures keep us from doing what we ought to do. But the good news is that the Holy Spirit has raised us from death to life. Amen? Amen? Amen. He has clothed us in the righteousness of Christ, and he enables and he equips every believer to live righteously. Praise the Lord. Will we stumble and fall? Yeah, probably. Will we live up to the golden rule all the time? Probably not. But when we put to death the deeds of the flesh, again, as Paul says, and we live according to the Spirit, we can actually accomplish the call to love others actively. Now, this is not a quid pro quo. If I love other people really well, they have to love me. This is just the standard of righteousness Jesus has set. Do you want to be loved? Love others, expecting nothing in return. Later in the gospel, Jesus is approached by a lawyer and asked, which is the greatest commandment? And I'm sure you know his response. 
He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There it is. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. It's not one or the other. The Christian life can't simply be love God and ignore people. Or love God and people don't matter. Nor is it simply simply love people and the God stuff doesn't matter. If we want to love God with everything we are, heart, soul, mind, and strength, it implies we're loving other people. If we are truly going to love his people, then we need to love God or else we don't understand love. Verse 12 comes after the call to be in communion with God in prayer. If we want to love God properly, we need to love his people. As one of my good friends, John Gerhardt, a missionary in New Orleans, is fond of saying, we live at the intersection of loving God and loving people. I love that. That's where we live as Christians, at the intersection of loving God and loving people. And he usually follows it up by saying, and intersections are where most of the car accidents happen. (laughs) Because it can get messy. Verse 12 here is a call for us to actively love, to go out of our way, to consider what other people want, and to do that. And the starting part is our own hearts, isn't it? The heart raised to life from death by the Spirit. What is it? that you would want, do that. Do you, would you want somebody to share the gospel with you? Would you want somebody to pray for you, to love you, to care for you, to look out for you, to bring you back from the brink of sin? Do that. It's pretty simple, right? Again, the Christian ethic is based on these verses. This is how we are supposed to respond to the world. Verse 12 ends the body of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, the Beatitudes were the preface, and everything after, up until verse 12, was the body. And now everything after verse 12 is the epilogue. So Jesus is going to call us to respond to the sermon in the next two weeks. And I'm excited to go through that with you. But today, today we have two holy activities every Christian needs, two calls to action. And that's how you should receive them this morning. Calls to action. Actively pray to God with bold, persistent prayers, expecting an answer, desiring His will for your life. And second, actively love others. The starting point being your heart. How does Jesus love others? Go there too. He never did anything wrong. If you want to know how to love other people, Jesus is a great starting point. And we live at the intersection right there, loving God and loving people, even if it gets a little messy. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we need your help with this. We need your help. We are not very good at expecting you to respond to our prayers. Sometimes we assume that we are just praying into the air, that it's actually not anything, that we're wasting our breath. Lord, forgive us of that. Forgive us of giving into that temptation. 
Lord, we, we do expect that you would answer. And so we pray for the good things that you want for us. We pray for righteous lives, that you would lead us out of sin and into life. We pray that you would meet our needs, our daily needs, so that we can do your will. We pray for healthy families and good relationships. We pray for unity here in the body. Lord, we know that you want to give us wisdom. We know you want us to grow in knowledge of your word. So we pray for those things too. We pray for hunger and a thirst for righteousness. And Lord, we ask that you would help us actively love other people. Lord, we, we think sometimes we're tempted to think that it doesn't apply to us or that we are more important than others. But Lord, let us love our neighbor as ourselves. We need your help to do that. Nobody can do that without the aid of the Spirit. We recognize that, we confess that, and we need you. Lord, we need you. We pray that you would help us accomplish these, these things. In Jesus' name, amen.